If our so-called facts are changing shadows, they are shadows cast by the light of constant truth. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Eddington. Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington. Wow. I would go as far as saying that uh, Arthur Eddington is perhaps the most underrated physicist of all time. I'm going to echo your words, Matthew. And I tell you what, facts are very important at the moment with both the UK and the US governments. What would you say about that? I think this is a very, very uh, subtle quote. It sort of talks about how people don't understand science because they think, oh, it's not what the scientists said last time. It's like, no, what scientists say are are ever-changing shadows, but the shadow is is at least cast by the light of a constant truth. It's rather lovely. He says so many that are so cool. It's a humdinger. Jamie, this is the 150th day of the year. Oh, my God. Goodness, I don't know what to do with that fact. Well, 29th of May. Some notable things, and the reason why Arthur Eddington came up is because in 1919, exactly 101 years ago, yeah. there was the solar eclipse, and that solar, solar eclipse was used by Arthur Eddington to test and confirm Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. OMG. Not bad, huh? That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal. Uh, 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 Much earlier in 1794 is the birth of Johann Heinrich von Madler. Oh, I love Johann. Johann von Madler, he was an astronomer of a very important note who designed lots of the very early proper good maps of Mars and the Moon. I think I would quite like a vintage map of his on my yes. wall. Oh, that would be. Do you know what? I reckon that's Might a very. Buy it. That's a very cool. When when it's your birthday next, Jamie. I yeah. shall be buying you a vintage map, a Madler map March of the Mars. Ni- March the 19th, mark it in your diaries. You can Job start done. saving now, listeners. I reckon I can save up enough to get one. Fully That's framed. Um, and, of course, 1999, Jamie, was, yeah. um, was the very first docking of a space shuttle to uh, the International Space Station. How that about is them exciting. Onions? Absolutely exciting stuff. Well, you know, something that should have happened this week, but didn't. I know. Well, you know, this is coming out Friday. We're recording it on the Thursday. And so hopefully, listeners, when you're listening to this, tomorrow will be launch day and everything will be fine. I mean, Matt, this is what happens in space. Things get put back, but we move on. Well, what's quite funny is I think that people who aren't used to launch, you know, rocket launches and the fact that they do get scrubbed ever so yeah. often. So many uh, annoyed going, oh, people God, like, I can't oh, that believe was an anticlimax. Like yeah, but it's like, yeah. that, that's why I don't buy a ticket to go and see them because it's just too damn risky. Yeah, you know, exactly. I've just spent a thousand quid going to see a launch that didn't happen. Oh, 
Um, I mean, yeah, it's bad enough to... when I spent 150 quid to go to Damstadt to see a law that didn't happen. Um, yeah, this is it. Yeah, you know, so it's it's all a little bit stressful. But, you know... They three... look good, though. I'll tell you what, how many kids were watching online excited about how futuristic it looked inside that Crew Dragon? I mean, amazing, right? It, it is very, 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 very cool. Uh, and a three-day wait, let's face it, is is really not a, that con- not that concerning absolute... after a nine-year wait. Oh God! I mean, in the space world, three days really isn't that much in terms of delays, is it? In the space world, three days is like a billionth of a second in normal life. Oh, I like your maths. That was quick yeah. maths. Jamie, I read a very funny story that I, I you know, is space-related and and sort of quite apt. That I, th- oh, yeah. I thought I'd at least bring up. It's a fun, fun little story. Um, there is a woman called Lindsay Tucker, which is a great name, right? Like her already. Hey, Lindsay yeah. Tucker. Lindsay Tucker has a mobile phone, and you know, occasionally when when you sort of change your phone number, and then eventually yeah. your old phone number works its way back into the pool of numbers available. Yeah. Well, she happens to have Elon Musk's old mobile phone number. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She must get she, some interesting texts. Yeah, well, she works at uh, Sephora Beauty Store in San Jose, California. Uh-huh. And, yes, and she gets lots and lots of phone calls from various different people, especially when Musk is in the news. She'll get loads of journalists saying, well, what's going on? What's going on? So she keeps yeah. getting phone calls on this uh, mobile phone. And the one that I thought was the funniest was, you know, John Lasseter of Pixar fame, who directed yes. things like Cars and stuff like that. Mm. He phoned up Elon to tell him how Ace's Tesla was. It was like, oh, man, this Tesla's amazing. But it turns out that <laughs> Lindsay goes to college with uh, John Lasseter's son and was able to sort of tell him, oh, by My the way, God. your dad's got the wrong number. How weird is that? That's mad. <laughs> So, yeah, how cool would it be to have Elon Musk's old number? I mean, yeah, it would be. Sometimes it would be cool. I think it, it would get annoying. Um, yeah, she's an act. She's an act, aspiring actress like everyone in California, I guess. And uh, so she doesn't want to get rid of the phone because lots of well, agents good luck. have her number. Good luck, Lin- yeah, good luck, Lindsay Tucker. We hope to see you on the silver screen. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully we don't soon. accidentally phone you up one day thinking you're Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think she might be able to put us in touch with him. I hope so. Yeah. I only hope so, Jamie. Yeah. Uh, Jamie. Yeah, go on. There was supposed to be a new era of spaceflight. Uh, that happened yes. this week, and it didn't quite happen, and it should happen by the time people are listening to this, and hopefully the weather will hold out. But I, I started thinking, and I did post a very popular little post on Instagram that keeps coming back, and that was posting up pictures of rockets that are capable of human spaceflight. And, yes. and every time I think about it, I'm quite surprised that in the last 60 years of human spaceflight, I can only really think of 11 or 12 human-rated spacecraft. Wow. Yeah. Don't you think that's incredible? It's not that many, is it? No. You know, it all kicked off with uh, the Vostok program, which, of course, Gagarin managed to get into orbital space in 1961, essentially on on an intercontinental ballistic missile, the R-7, 
or a sort yes. of variant of the R7. And yeah, so that's the first human spaceflight. Uh, and it, not much has changed if you consider how similar the Soyuz is. But uh, the next one, of course, was uh, the Mercury project. And as far as I can make out, Project Mercury is the only project that has had more than one human-rated spacecraft. So there was the Mercury Redstone and the Mercury Mercury Atlas. Atlas. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I think, yeah, that's quite... Uh, that, that's odd. So there's there's two two rockets there can get people into space. Then of course you've got the one that some people don't consider as going into space, and that's the eight pilots that flew on the X fifteen. Ah, the X fifteen, which for thirteen of its flights went above eighty kilometers, which is the American definition of getting into space. Although yeah. a lot of people prefer the Kármán line at a hundred kilometers. And therefore, they wouldn't have made it into space. So you could you could even scrub yeah. that one off. So we we, even, we end up with even less. Uh, then of course, imagine I, going to eighty k, and then someone saying, "Oh, you're not really you're not really an astronaut, are you?" Well, I, d- you I don't think they have to imagine it because that kind of happens. I think there's a bit of snobbery mm. between your orbital astronauts and your you'd be gutted, wouldn't astronauts. you? Yeah. Well, have you know I have been into space? Well, yeah. not really. Nah, not really, mate. You just went to ACKM, didn't you? Of course, Armstrong has done both. Of course he has. Yeah. Voskhod. Oh, what, 1964 to 65? Yeah, that is your kind of interim program between uh, Vostok and Soyuz. Yes, it is. And they had a couple of EVAs, of course. So that's the first time that your boy Leonov did his EVA. And uh, so that's pretty cool. And then just a pip after that is Project Gemini that went up on the Titan II rocket. Aha. One of your favourites. Well, yeah. Well, it's everyone's favourite. I mean, what a great name. The Titan. Titan II. It's lovely. Project Gemini had 10 crewed flights. But Soyuz, I mean, Soyuz, this is just ridiculous. 1967 until now, it really Mm. is the space launch human space launch vehicle isn't it i mean that that is it's quite the, a workhorse isn't it but the workhorse doesn't even cover it really does it i mean that imagine how many people have been sent into space on on the soyuz program yeah it's insane actually that was that was money well spent back in 1967 well matt so, i'm gonna throw this one at you how about mm-hmm. the apollo program oh do you Not know what bad. I, no i slightly lied i slightly lied didn't i because i suppose at uh, the apollo program has two rockets as well, the Saturn V and the Saturn 1B. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the Saturn 1B was used for a couple, and Saturn V, of course, was obviously your big boy that got people to the moon. What a lad. Well, if you think about it, it's the only vehicle ever to send people into deep space yes. rather than just low-Earth orbit. Yes, absolutely. So, so really, it's it's the only proper spacecraft um, space shuttle, of course, that was a big one. That got a lot of people yeah. into space. Uh, the Chinese have had the Shenzhou program, which um, in 2003 lofted old Yang Lai Wei into, uh-huh, into yes. orbit. And, of course, that was the much forgotten. If you said 
name a humans human rated spacecraft i doubt many people would say the long march 2f no but it's there it's there it's it's one of the it's, own, the it's on the list well right now it's only that and soyuz that are kind of currently flying um human rated spacecraft so it's quite funny every time you not. say soyuz it makes me hungry i don't it yeah. sounds like some kind of sort of lovely sauce that you'd put over noodles I've bought some um, nori seaweed to make sushi later on. Get your California roll on. Did you know that nori seaweed was rescued by a, an English woman? Uh, who really? has? Yeah. If you look at the history of, basically, she she saved see uh, she saved sushi because she discovered why it was dying out, and they celebrate her in Japan every year. But we've never heard of her over here. But she's a massive celebrity. This English woman. I don't. I don't even know her name. But in Japan, they well, certainly we need to do. Fi- we need to find out. That's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. next week's show, <laughs> we will reveal the name of the woman that we will saved reveal the sushi. Name. Yes, uh, it's it's a, it's a marvelous little fact that one. Um, and since then, really, uh, since like the nineties development, we've had Spaceship One. Which just about scraped space with a with a pilot in two thousand and four, and of course. And let space- me guess, Matthew, mm-hmm. Spaceship Two. Yep. And so there, yeah, that 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 made it in two thousand and eighteen, of course, and and marking the end of Shuttle Gap. Yeah, and of course, in February the twenty second, two thousand and nineteen, or Loretta's birthday, as I know it, um, that yeah. was when a Scottish person became the first scot to get into space under the american definition so not many people spotted that at the time and not even i really i, I only spotted many. it spotted it at the end of the year when i was talking to helen sharman about it oh you drop a clangor or two I did, yes, well i'll tell yes, you what matt yes, yes, we've spoken story. about the past mm-hmm. why not speak about the future should we look at some upcoming in the next few years well, yes. In the next few days, perhaps. Almost, oh, what? Almost certainly we're going to be seeing Dragon 2, which has been a project going since 2010. Yeah. So Falcon 9 will be added to the list of about, really, seven or eight rockets that, that have ever gone into space carrying humans to go orbital. That's right. Yeah, so that's going to be... I mean, it is a big deal, isn't it, really? It really is exciting. Yeah. And like we said, it's it's got the worm with the return burn. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> which, <laughs> which, I, you know, I might get a T-shirt, the worm with the return burn. Once oh, this I is think all we over. can trademark that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 big time. Um, and then we've got CST-100, the Starliner, which really should have beaten Dragon 2 to this landmark, but unfortunately, due to very dodgy computer programming, it really hasn't, and it's been a bit of a fiasco. <sighs> of course, that Heritage launch, launches on an Atlas V rocket, and of course, it was an Atlas that took Project Mercury up. So, although time. all these Atlas versions of Atlas, they change so much, I don't see why they're even called the same thing. But anyway, then, of course, recently we had that test of the Long March 5B with the next generation crewed spacecraft on it. That's it. So I wonder if that I wonder if that is going to be crewed before something like Dream Chaser. Oh, Dream Chaser. 
dream chaser, chaser, chaser. I'm not <laughs> convinced that's ever going to happen. I think dream chaser might get used as a cargo vessel, but I'm just not sure yeah. for human spaceflight. Do you reckon that G- dream chaser, when it goes up, it'll be they'll have loads of wind chimes on the outside and like incense sticks and stuff. And yeah, and those kind of weird dream catcher nets right in front yeah. of where they're trying to look out the cockpit. And the crew will be wearing those like there's amazing t-shirts of like, you know, wolves howling at the moon and stuff. Oh yes. Classics. Yeah, it's, it's basically a hippie vehicle, isn't it? The dream. Yeah, it really chaser. is. Peace out. That goes up on an Atlas V as well, apparently. There we go. Glory. Mm, that's if it's still going by then. Um New Shepherd. That should have gone up by now with with a human to go mm. suborbital. But still hasn't, which is a little bit surprising. It is. Um going over to India, the Ganganyan project. Yes. And that gets launched on a GSLV Mark III. So that would be yet another addition, at least, to human-rated spacecraft. December next year. Yeah. I, yeah. Do I believe that? I mean, that would be amazing if India launched be great. a human in December 2021. Something to, something to look be, forward that'd to. That would be very, very cool. Um, uh, here is the biggest wild card in here, Jamie, and that's yeah. S- Speaker. S-P-I-C-A. Ah. From Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Yeah, Copenhagen suborbitals make this. And it's a crowdfunded amateur human space program. I don't know if anything is much cooler than that. Shout out to not only Copenhagen, but Denmark as a whole. One of got to be one of my favourite countries on Earth. If we have any listeners from Denmark, get in touch because I'd like to be a friend. Just saying. Oh, do you know what? Have you been to Denmark, Matt? Uh, I haven't been to Denmark, actually. Oh, it's so great. People are lovely. Food's great. The the nature is beautiful. I just love it. Hence the song, Wunderbar, Wunderbar, Copenhagen. Isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Have you forgotten to take your pills again? (laughs) Are your men on the right pills? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to quote Flash Gordon. Oh, dear. Um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, there's the Federation, which is supposed to be the replacement, really, of... which. Well, I guess is the Russian equivalent of Orion. Ah, yes. Yes. Um, and that's, Orel. Uh, Orel, it's called nowadays, yes. Um, used to be called Federation until quite recently. That's still ongoing. I wonder if that Matt, will ever fly. What about what about New Glenn? Yeah. That's a bit of a wild card as well. New Glenn should be capable of human spaceflight, but whether it ever will be, I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it will. Now, here's one for you. Starship. Starship. I mean, come on. What a beauty. Let's face it, that's pretty... That's, that is awesome. If Starship happens, it really is game-changing. I, I, yeah. I can't even conceive just how big a bigger deal it will be it will really change everything yes but but there is big butts on that i think we need to be a little bit more sober about it at times i like big butts and i cannot lie i know i know (laughs) it makes the rocking world go round yeah that it does iranian crewed spaceship oh yeah that is surely the most dangerous being iran's unbelievably poor record at launching anything yeah 
So yes, that uh, I believe that that's actually been shut down though. So that that's not very likely. Well, but, Matt, let's not let's not forget Artemis. Last but not least, SLS and Orion, of course. Yes, that's a big one. Should actually happen in the next few years that we get to see. We hope so. Humans lofted into space on one of the most powerful rockets ever built. Yeah, big time. But yeah, uh, but Jamie, let's shall we spare a thought for all those projects that have that have almost happened but didn't. Hang on, let me just light my candle. Okay, I'm ready. You ready? These are the abandoned human spacecraft. Mm. And really, I think one of the ones that that deserves a mention here, more than anything, is the Mega Rock. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Mega Rock. The Mega Rock was basically, yeah, R.A. Smith in 1946 basically said a V2 rocket was just about big enough to carry a person. So you basically stuff a person inside a V2 rocket and get them up to about 300 kilometres. So definitely into space. Jeez, yeah. that It'd be pretty scary, I reckon. A little bit. But hey, but hey, that would have been, that could have been Britain getting the first man in space. How history would be very different. It would be. If it had been... Someone like, oh, Johnny Smith from the RAF instead of Yuri Gagarin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Being the first man in space. Yeah, wow. totally. Yeah. Armstrong was actually part of a program called Man in Space Soonest that was supposed to lo- launch on a Thor <laughs> rocket. I love how layman it is. Man in Space Soonest project. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> like, it, it does sound like they were in a bit of a rush. Yeah. What are we going to you know call I mean? it? So good. Now, one, I tell you what, when you, when you start going through the list of abandoned human space projects, mm. the one project that seems to kind of be the daddy of all the failed space projects is the X-20 or the dinosaur, the dinosaur. Yeah, classic. Which was the dynamic saurer, the dinosaur. Which is quite clever in See its See what name. they did, yeah. Although kind of sa- makes it sound obso- obsolete before it's even started, really, doesn't that it? It really it's does. It's a great name. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's the first of the kind of really recognisable space planes. So when you see it, it still looks, you know, like dr- uh, Dream Chaser, Dream Weaver. Dream Weaver. The, the dinosaur is definitely up there as the kind of daddy of them all. And it was supposed to be, you know, a military plane for dropping bombs and doing reconnaissance missions. Matt, um, let me ask you, do you like mods? Mods? Yeah, you know, manned orbital development systems. I I do like manned orbital development systems. Oh, there we go. <laughs> big fan myself. I think that replaced Dinosaur, didn't it? The, the mods. Yeah, big time, yeah. Mods yeah. replaced, yes. And moles, the manned orbiting oh. laboratory. I mean, that. The manned orbiting laboratory and the similar Soviet orbital space station, which was uh, one was basically both where they were trying to have a bunch of soldiers up in space ready to deploy at any point. (laughs) Yeah. The Soviet orbital station was known as the Battlestar Khrushchev. Sounds familiar. So, yes, it was yeah five times the volume of Salyut 1. God damn. And a nuclear armed space station. God, that would have been a scary proposition. Every time it flew over, you see and go, "Oh my God!" Oh, yeah. There's a there's a bunch of maniacs. Don't up press the red button. 
Yeah, don't go mad on the space station and press the red button. <laughs> yeah, should we have some vodka tonight, lads? Yeah, better not. <laughs> uh, there was also a, a, the, the Soviet, and this is a really interesting little project called the Spiral Program. Hmm. That that consisted of hypersonic air breathing aircraft, expendable two stage rockets, but uh, more interestingly was this um, a, a, an orbital space plane very similar to the dinosaur. Oh yeah, of course. But you know, but you know why they cancelled that program? No, Buran came along. Ah, oh. and they even managed to do a test flight with the Buran. And for my money, the whole system is perhaps the best rocket ever made so far oh wow that's a huge call it is well the buran i think was slightly more capable than the space shuttle it it, because it could fly autonomously for a start off Mm. which the space shuttle couldn't in other words the test flight didn't require balls of steel john young to fly it (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) you know so and the energia rocket that it flew on could get a boku de cargo into space i love it that was one beast of a rocket it was so yeah 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 and and you know unlike the shuttle you could use the energia sort of part of it on its own you couldn't use the fuel tank and the rocket boosters of the shuttle on its own because the engines were on the shuttle bizarrely which was a bit of a weird call a little bit a chinese have had a few like the Shu uh, Guan, yes, which was very similar to Gemini, and they also thought about putting uh, people in their FSW satellites. Oh which yeah, is, which is a bit weird. Of course. Oh yeah, which would be because yeah, they had this recoverable satellite system, and they thought, well, you could stick a person in it if it's recoverable. Big time. Probably a little bit dangerous. <laughs> yeah. But the but then we sort of head into the era of European ideas mm. for space planes. So the Germans had a thing called the Sanger 1 and 2, right? Mm. So the, the, two, well, the one was in the 60s, the two was in the 80s. And that's one of those planes that sits on top of another plane. Yes, type that's thing, right. Two-stage space plane. Really cool. And at one point, they were thinking of launching it on a steam train. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this, like, plane wow. on a steam train. Steam train gets it up to an insane speed, and then you launch the actual uh, final second stage off the off the steam train yeah that sounds crazy imagine how acer launch that would it sounds very back to the future oh man it just sounds totally bonkers um but yeah they also were talking about this point-to-point transfer as well so using the using this sanger to get 230 passengers from frankfurt to tokyo at mach 4.4 damn but but flying at 25 kilometers, so this sonic boom wouldn't be a problem. Shout out to so, Guile yeah, from that... Street Fighter 2. <laughs> um, yeah, nice. Um, um, Hotel. Ah, yes, the Jane. United Kingdom. The United Kingdom. The Alan Bond masterpiece. Absolute genius. That ended up just getting... Slightly bogged down in all the technical difficulties and yeah. then cancelled. Classic British styly. Oh, what's wrong with us? Um, Where's our staying power, s- eh? Where is our staying power? Then there's the Zarya Super Soyuz, Russian Super Soyuz X30. Oh, ha, ha. 
Old Rockwell. The Rockwell X30 single-staged orbital SSTO spacecraft, but it never happened. Oh. Similar to that, the, 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 and again, this European thing, Hermes, yes. was the kind of one that almost got there. It's so close. That would, have been, that would have been Europe's space plane that would have been launched on... Ariane 5. Ariane 5, yeah. So a, a little tiny space plane. Very similar to the X-37B, really, except it's manned. And, uh, well, obviously, like I said, they, they're all kind of related to dinosaur, these things. And even even the Japanese were doing it. They, were, they had this thing called the Hope X. Yeah. And they, they'd got a long way with Hope X as well until they cancelled it because they... Well, basically, you know what happened to the Japanese economy in the late 90s. Yes. Total disaster, right? So, yeah, Not bad good. news. Bad news, but really, it's the X-33 Venture Star that's my favourite. Oh, yeah, you love that. Everyone loves it because it was the closest thing we ever had to having an aerospike engine, which everyone seems to still nerd on about, but but probably rightly so. But the X-33 was really, really close to flying and just got sort of cancelled while they were building the prototype. Ah, oh, that's right. Because, you know, it was like, well, no, we just don't have enough money for this. But yeah, the Venture Star was supposed to be the replacement of the space sh- shuttle. So instead of having external boosters and stuff like that, you just had this massive aerospike engine that was efficient enough to get the whole thing out into Boom. space. So it was an epic, epic thing. But this reminds me of Starship, really. It's like the development of it went a long, long way, except Mm. it wasn't as public as Starship is. No. So, you know, Starship, they're doing it in a field in front of everyone and everyone's going, oh, my God, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But if NASA had done the same thing with Venture Star or Lockheed had done the same thing with Venture Star, then everyone would have been going, oh, my God, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, until eventually they just went, do you know what? This is never going to be quite cost-effective, so we're cancelling it. So, you know, SpaceX could quite easily at some point just go, nah, Starship's not happening, done, it's finished. Yeah, totally. I'm glad they haven't. I'm glad they haven't, but they certainly could. Oh, they could. (laughs) (laughs) Then Hopper, Clipper is another one. Clipper was this Russian, a Russian space plane that ESA was supposed to be helping, and it looks cool as clipper is really cool but it got cancelled because isa were really um isa were involved in the project but they didn't really want to tell the russians all these secrets that they'd discovered on developing hermes and all these other space planes and it was like yeah you know i'm just gonna collaborate i'm just gonna google it because i don't think i've ever seen clipper oh Oh, clipper that is cool that is mega cool. It looks like a sort of badass version of Dream Chaser. It really does. It looks it? like looks a little bit like um, a killer whale. It does. I'm into it. <laughs> like it. But yeah, I want one. I want a clipper. When's your birthday, Matt? Yeah, you're going to have to save up big time. I'll ask the Patreons. <laughs> but you know what? For the For the podcast notes, I'm going to extract all the space planes from that list and put them all next to each other, because I think it's really interesting to see how the dinosaur was just so influential, even on things like the space shuttle and oh, stuff like that. Hugely. It's like all of them put together, you'll start to see this kind of heritage that, that works its way through, through from 
from, you know, right from Dinosaur, through the X30, through the X33, through Hermes, yeah. through Clipper, through, you know, all these different uh, uh, space planes. Big it's time. Like Hope X, you know, God. It's, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's nuts. But I still can't get over in 60 years of human spaceflight, 60 years, Jamie. Crazy, isn't it? We really have only had seven or eight spacecraft that are capable of doing it. Well, it's, it just proves, Matt, doesn't it, how hard space is. It is it is bloody hard. <laughs> it really is. It's really, really, really hard. Jamie, do you want to hear a science story from the week? Hit me. We've talked about this one before when we were talking about baryonic acoustic waves. Which oh, yeah, that's so was, us. That was so us. Yeah. It's not about dark matter, this story. And, and I think a lot of people, when they first read the story, might think, oh, this is just a dark matter story. It's not. It's not. But basically, there's been this problem that there's missing matter in the universe. And this yeah. is normal matter, this is. So when you look at the cosmic microwave background closely, you can infer how much normal matter, or baryonic matter as physicists call it, yeah. how much normal matter there should be in the universe, right? So if you look at that picture, you, you should get about 5% of the universe should be made of just normal matter. Right. Right? Not dark matter and dark energy. That's the, that's the other 95% yeah. right? <laughs> that we don't know what it is, which is a little, a tad embarrassing. It is, isn't it? So, uh, but, and, but not only can you look at the cosmic microwave background, you can also look at Big Bang, the theory of Big Bang nucleosynthesis. And it gives you this same answer that 5% of the universe should be matter. But when you look out and you sort of add up all the stuff in galaxies, so you look at all the stars and exoplanets and all the dust clouds and all those kind of things and you and you and all the gas you add all that up and you only get to about two and a half three percent of the mass of the universe so it's like ooh, there's there's quite a bit of missing matter somewhere right yeah and, and this was known as the baryonic missing baryonic matter problem which of course is not great a bit embarrassing, not quite as embarrassing as the other 95%. <laughs> right. Right, so where has all that stuff gone? But, well, in 2017, astronomers began to become a lot more convinced that this missing matter was actually in these very tenuous, hot strands of matter that that stretch between the galaxies, these mm. kind of filaments of a spider web. Um and if you and they started looking really closely at the CMB and were able to find the kind of find the shadow or dim patches that this spider web would give in the CMB. That's right. And and once they looked really closely, it gave the right answer that that yes, indeed, here was the missing matter. However, there's quite a lot of room for inaccuracy in these figures. You know, we're talking about something these pictures that are so sensitive that you have pretty big error bars on them. So there's still a bit of wiggle room that, that, it, that it's wrong. Uh-huh. But, but a paper that came out this week in Nature called A Census of Baryons in the Universe from Localized, and here we come, here's my favourite bit, Fast Radio Bursts. Fast Radio Bursts to the rescue, Jamie. I'll tell you what, they just always come to the rescue. Yeah. 
Well, so fast radio bursts, we've talked about these before. FRBs, very mysterious things that no one knows really what's causing them. Well, it's definitely aliens uh, trying to contact us. That's what the papers yeah, say. Yeah, so it might be just aliens with a very bright torch. Yeah. That, that only lasts for a very, 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 very short Yeah, it's like, look, they period. know Morse code too. Well, it might be. Maybe these FRBs are aliens. Unlikely, though. Unlikely. Unlikely. They're coming from lots of different places. Yeah. And they're all very similar. And unless they all, unless all these aliens have similar technology, then it's unlikely. But here's the incredible thing. Imagine these fast radio bursts are like torches that shine a light right the way through intergalactic space. Yeah. Well, this is the theory that J.P. McCart of the uh, International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Australia and his uh, co-author, J. Xavier Prochanska of the University of California. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, they've, ex- they've examined five of these FRBs that come from uh-huh. known galaxies. So they, they've been able to trace these FRBs back to particular galaxies, and so they know where these FRBs have come from. And, and that's pretty rare to know where FRBs come from and track them down to their host galaxies. Uh, they've been all found by the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP. Oh, yes. Um, uh, and if you look at the light that's coming off these, these FR, FRB flashes of sort of torchlight beaming across the galaxy, if you look very closely, you can sense the time delay of various frequencies. So the purple light will arrive ever so quicker than the sort of other light colours in the spectrum. This is it. And and the sensitivity of this of this array has been able to say, yes, you know, some parts of the light spectrum have been arriving sooner than other parts. And so this is how the paper describes it. It says the technique determines the electron column density along each line of sight and accounts for every ionized baryon. Oh, so so as sentence. the light passes through, and I'm, and I'm going to say insanely sparse intergalactic medium, hmm. it changes. It changes depending on the amount of matter that it's had to sort of go through. And the, and the detector is sensitive enough to pick that up. And so, um, because the astronomers know the redshift of each of these galaxies and how far away they are, they've been able to infer how much matter is in between the galaxy and Earth from these FRBs. And the measurement is pretty spot on for the missing mass again. So it adds hugely to the consensus now that this missing baryonic matter is in between the galaxies in these filaments of hot gas in between the galaxies um which is just insane isn't it really is my god uh but you know as as we find more frbs that we can track bound track to different galaxies the error bars in that calculation will come down and we'll pretty much be able to just uh, properly stick the nail into yes that's definitely where all the missing matter is right and it's just like there is no question still a little bit of a question but it's like bang this is done now well, this is all over it's done i'm all up for sticking a nail in something matt you know that 
I'm, well, I know. I know, Jamie. But even more interesting is that you can start to map the spider web that holds the entire universe together. Now you know, that... The, these little cut... The cosmic web. You that can start is my kind it. of map. You know, the more and more FRBs, imagine them every time you look out in a... In, if you're in a room and someone occasionally shines a very, very bright torch just for a second, you get a glimpse of, of that little corner of the room and you can eventually map the room. Yeah. How cool That's is that? So, I love that idea. I just love it. But if you want to get some idea about how massive intergalactic space is, <laughs> Jamie, right? Yeah. So th the density of the material that they've measured is one baryon per cubic meter. So let's just say that that's an atom or a proton per cubic meter, right? That's, that's I cannot tell you how sparse that is. It's saying the bit of air that's right in front of your mouth right now, Jamie. Mm. If we took a cubic meter of that air, there'd be 10 trillion trillion molecules, let alone atoms, in that space. God damn. If you go up Mount Everest, it, go, it drops down to 4 trillion trillion. Still quite a lot. <laughs> well, listen, Matt, <laughs> you know, I don't need to get any denser. So if you go to the International Space Station, the space, which everyone thinks is a vacuum, still has around 10 trillion molecules it's a lot there per cubic meter so it's far from a vacuum where the Sp international space station is yeah and even if you're a third of the way to the moon where where essentially the earth atmosphere just doesn't exist anymore there's still seven million per cubic meter and then if you go to the edge of the solar system there's still thousands of atoms per cubic meter so this whole idea that space is a vacuum is is utter it is utter poppycock utter nonsense so imagine that so even where where at the edge of the solar system you've still got thousands of atoms per cubic meter yeah, it's just ridiculous and, and then you think that like half the matter is contained where there's only one atom per cubic meter yeah in the rest of this intergalactic space so you suddenly realize how massive intergalactic spaces like it's just unimaginable it's i mean the solar system big. is unimaginable and and sort of how big the galaxy is is unimaginable but then the the intergalactic space is just insanely unimaginably uh, and, and, big. and that's the intergalactic space that we know about currently yeah that the, the space in between say us and andromeda between the Milky Way and Andromeda is just so unfathomably huge. It's big. In fact, one of the things is, yeah, if, if certain galaxies, if you tried to get to them, because space is expanding, you might you might never be able to get to them because you'd have to travel insanely fast to overcome the fact that dark energy is speeding them away from you. <laughs> it's My like, God, oh. my brain hurts. Yeah, it's it's all very brain Matt, if, hurting. Um, if you're a new listener and you've enjoyed your brain hurting, is there any website you can go to to get more information about this podcast? Oh, I thought you meant like help, like NHS Direct <laughs> or something. Uh, <laughs> you can go yeah. to www.interplanetary.org.uk. That's .org.uk. Absolute huge shout. You can find out about our social media, our blog, our patron, how you become one of the elite patrons supporting this show. Uh, Jamie, late, uh, just last week, I spoke to David Baker. 
Papa Bakes. But, uh, yes, here's, do, here's, do you want to hear a little, little acute to Let's David Baker? Absolutely do it. Okay, acute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Long time uh, uh, not had you on the show. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, David. How are you? I'm absolutely fine, yes, and uh, lockdown fever, but I guess we were getting that, <laughs> but it's good to be back with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lock, lockdown fever is, is, is certainly the case, but you've got some interesting stories about about the effect of lockdown, I noticed, in spaceflight. I think that's probably a really good place to start, so yes, you're running well, a, a particular yeah. story on that, so yeah, give, give us the lowdown. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd better gather it all together and, in an issue which I've flagged up on, on the cover as The Quiet Earth, which leads you to a six-page feature inside that I put together, gathering together the extraordinary stories um, from science, environmentalists, and from, from those who are specializing in monitoring the planet and the pollution levels and uh, the various atmospheric contaminants. And, and the fact that First off, that people are working from, from home as an incredible 25% increase in satellite communications. And this is why a lot of the networks have had to reduce the bandwidth that they're operating on with regard to films and communications because they simply didn't have enough capacity within the existing system to, uh, to be able to unload that 25% increase among all the data catchers around the world. So it's seismologists, it's environmentalists, who have noted an extraordinary transformation in the environmental state of the planet. Um, and so quickly and so suddenly that the, the massive collapse of industrial activity has simply taken the foot off the loud pedal and allowed the planet to breathe back. And every scientist that I've spoken to and specialist in these various sectors inspired me so much to put this together in a special feature because the figures are just staggering. In Italy alone, which was one of the first to go into, into a serious lockdown, nitrogen dioxide levels within a week had plummeted by 35% in Rome and in Bergamo by 47%. And in India, they have seen within 10 days of the lockdown in India, they saw various levels from nitrogen dioxide and methane levels have dropped to a 20-year low for this time of the year in northern India. And we've got maps there which show from satellite data the extraordinary cleansing of the air. And I think scientists realized that with the damage that was being done to the environment, something that we've always put on the back of our, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, it's the product of our industrialization. Yes, it's terrible, isn't it? And eventually we'll work through to a cleaner environment and we'll work through a greener energy in this. And scientists really expected it would take several years for the planet to bounce back. It took days and weeks. And it's extraordinary right across the lexicon of life itself as well, because for the first time in 150 years, the oceans have been quieter than they have ever been, because 150 years ago, we started putting into the oceans thrashing propellers that operated at the frequencies that cetaceans use to communicate with each other across thousands of kilometers. They had moved away from propagation paths in the oceans where these throbbing pulsations were drowning out their communications. Within a matter of a few weeks, they had begun to restitch their old migratory networks right back again. And the big thing is not 
that there has been a reduction, which was a fairly expected consequence of the of the 90% reduction in industrial activity and the movement of transportation systems, but the speed with which the Earth has bounced back. And I called it the quiet Earth because one story in particular really caught my, my attention, and it was about a seismologist in London, Paula Kerlmeyer, is actually monitoring as a seismologist from working at home mount a small seismometer mounted on a concrete slab in her fireplace in London is picking up vibrations from Australia that were totally physically impossible to see and have been for the last hundred years. And they're putting together seismologists all over the planet, diving in massively to be able to characterize layers of the of the crust and the outer mantle that they were never able to plumb for the whole era of modern technical monitoring seismological equipment. And the list just goes on. Bird migratory patterns have started to spring back to what they were reported to be a hundred years ago. And also bird monitoring because there are tens of thousands of birds that are monitored by satellites on a daily basis. And the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds um, claims that ospreys, white-tailed eagles, red kites, Montague harriers, bald ibis, turtle doves, all being tracked, are completely returning as though there's some inherited memory of the old tracks and the old migratory routes that now are free of the turbulence for sustained commercial air traffic and from the much cleaner environment and atmosphere. And it is true, you can hear more bird song because the quality of the atmosphere and the particulate concentrations through which sound is propagated has changed back enormously. And guess what? There's been a 15% increase in the number of stars people can see. It's like the opposite of the Roaring Twenties then, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'm assuming that there is one big elephant in the room and that's the carbon uh, element of this, the, the the global warming element of this, mm. isn't uh, a factor that that's locked in, as it were. Yes, yes. There's there's obviously um, obviously CO two emissions have come down very significantly, and that is being measured. Methane levels as well have dissipated enormously from the mm. very significant reduction in. It in industrial activity, and that is measurable on a local level. But I think within the overall global mix, most certainly and very definitely, the long-term consequences are still there. There are immediate bounce-back models, which I think are good analogues for how we could get the planet back to something that's more sustainable were we to treat this as a tremendous opportunity. And I see this. I mean, every challenge and every crisis is an opportunity for change. And I don't see it as negative. It's tragic and undeniably um, depressing um, the number of people who have died as a result of this uh, awful virus. But we can't change that now. The moment it slips one second into the past, we can't change it. Mm. So why focus all our attention on the morbid catastrophes that have afflicted humankind because as humans on this planet, we think collectively for the welfare of others. We should do, and we do in general, in, in the main. That's why we are concerned. That's why we are 
traumatized at some levels by the appalling loss of life. But it is an opportunity not to wallow in our own negativity, but to say, well, this is one enormous great lesson and a window on how quickly we could make things happen if we took this crisis as a challenge and found a fast solution by knitting it together and stitching it permanently with environmental concerns and really putting it up there as number one. And the space program has an enormous role to play in that. Yeah, it's a really good message. And I, and I think that the, the, one of the big things that will come out of this is that psychological shift. I mean, we were talking about it before we started recording. And I think that the psychological shift of things that are now possible, which I don't think would have been possible before. And, and I guess one of the big psychological twists as it were is yes these global global catastrophes can happen so when people even down to things like when people talk about meteorite strikes and and things like that now i guess there's been a little bit of a shift in thinking and thinking oh yeah we we shouldn't just ignore people when they say stuff like mm. this because it, it genuinely might happen we don't want to we don't want to live through that kind of thing again do you think yeah. do, you, do you think that is there an element of that that, that kind of plays in there as well? Is there a, a psychological thing that I've missed? I, I, I think um, it's very easy to see both sides of this, both going back, rushing back to business as usual, and also a very, very increasing percentage of the general public who, who really seem to have taken it right on the chin, have absorbed the shock, and have really accepted that that is a big hit to us. But it, it's a battleground because there are those who will want to put it back under the carpet as, oh, well, we'll get to that when we've solved the economic crisis. But that's the fundamental problem, the fact that we're not connecting an economic philosophy and a concept of managing sophisticated economies with the desperate imperative to reduce the contamination of our environment and to see ourselves as part of a holistic group of living things. We, we get so exercised about finding life elsewhere in the solar system. We don't, we, we don't differentiate between the types of life. And when we come to Earth, do, do we differentiate and put it pyramidally so that we are assumed to be at the apex of the pyramid? We are a pretty aggressive self-serving primate as a very late comer on a world that's more than four billion years old. And I feel it's a philosophical issue as well that should be embedded within our whole strategies and our whole concept that we coexist with a vast range of living things on this planet, but we're not at the top of any pyramid. And that that is only because of our aggressive ability to subjugate other living things as part of the trammeling process which we feel is essential to fuel what we term an industrial and growth society. Growth is essential, but it does not have to be at the price of our own future and those of our children's future. There's much more intelligence required here to be able to understand the holistic approach about an Earth which is a simple, single, organic structure without pyramids 
and without priorities other than an equitable balance of living things on this planet. Because we're continually learning, aren't we? And we're continually being amazed by specialists in various fields how important the insectoria is to our agrarian activities, to agriculture, to food production. And whether you go down the road of, of meat-eating or vegetarianism, they're both equally injurious on the environment in various ways. So we need to manage things more effectively and more intelligently. And it's been said so many times, we need to work smarter rather than harder. So that's my view. But I think it's divided. I think there's a battleground coming between those who want to again put the blinkers on and those who also feel, my God, this is a great big wake-up call. We cannot go back to business as usual. No, and I think I suppose the upcoming American election is going to be a pretty pivotal moment in all that, I, I, I would imagine. I think yeah. so. I yeah. think so. And, and, and I think on, on, on this business of, of sustainability as well, another thing that worries me is the way the current Trump administration is um, is changing the law on access to, to extraterrestrial resources as well with regard to the change... Um, in the in the 1979 Moon Agreement, which Trump has signed in, into law, and this is something which which also I I highlighted in the current issue of of spaceflight. Um, in that uh, he sees it, he sees the acquisition, and to quote the exact words which I'm reading to as I speak to here, Americans should have the right to engage in the commercial exploration, recovery, and use of resources in outer space. And that has brought a deep, a deep level of concern across many ESA countries who feel that this move toward deep space mining is being politicized to an extent that the rush for resources, which has done so much damage when done without intelligent thinking... <laughs> you know, mm. rather than um, rushing straight for the Klondike solution, the gold rush solution, is that we will end up politicizing outer space, not through necessarily territorial boundaries being claimed, but perhaps through the, the um, domination at national level of certain expeditionary um, claims on various asteroids, locations on the moon. And there's no doubt the Trump administration is very, very deeply concerned about long-term plans that the Chinese have for these areas. And are the Chinese going to be any more um, intelligently focused on the need for equitable access on an almost United Nations level for any resources that do come from the solar system, or are we going to go back again to using outer space as a territorial stomping ground, the new Wild West of the new age of a 21st century industrial revolution in space. Yeah, that's... Uh, <coughs> yeah, there's a lot to think about there. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I, but I think I, it's tied together. I think yeah. it's all tied together. How, how, does that, how did that fit in, for example, with this Artemis Accords that uh, Jim Bridenstine revealed? Yeah, yeah well, well, it's... It's interesting that, that there are three programs which are happening simultaneously with, within Artemis and, and the Gateway, that, that there is a demonstration flight. And it's interesting that now we've, we've morphed Artemis three, the first landing that Trump wants by 2024, um, that that is a demonstration flight. 
and that the sustainable operations will come from 2028. And in order to fast-track the hardware preparation for that hoped-for landing in 2024, which very few within the program really do feel is, is achievable, so much is being cleared out of the way, and the commercial world of launch vehicle providers is stepping in robustly to take charge of delivering elements for both surface exploration and for the gateway. And the gateway has been moved to one side. It's no longer on the critical path to getting on the moon. So the gateway is now excluded from any access during the demonstration mission. So the first tranche of Artemis is to get on the moon by 2024 and achieve the political goal, just as Apollo 11 achieved the political goal of the Kennedy administration. But whereas we were all all hoping for a follow-on and sustainable presence on the moon in Apollo, that was denied by the collapse of the budget and the fact that the American public turned away from the been there, got the T-shirt mentality, why should we keep going back? And now we're hoping, we're hoping and hoping that the political structure that prevails over the next few years, despite elections or whatever, will allow a sustainable investment in habitats and bases on the surface of the moon. And those are now being planned and defined in that more protracted, sustainable component. But the gateway, um, as we're all very aware, the human spaceflight boss, NASA's Artemis moon boss, uh, resigned because because of, of uh, the fact that he cooperated a little too energetically with one of the companies, not for any personal gain, not for any gratuitous uh, advantage he had himself, but simply to try to fast track and to get as much help to a contractor. But he stepped outside the zones of acceptability to civil service administrations and divulged materials and helped them with information to one of the contractors, which perhaps we can't name because neither NASA nor this company involved has um, has made a statement to that effect. But before Lavera went, um, he decided that they're looking around at commercial launch vehicles to launch all the components of the gateway. Previously, the bulky components of the gateway, which which are two particularly important elements, and and uh, that is the power and propulsion element, the PPE. <laughs> Where well, we heard that acronym before, um, and the the Habitation and Logistics Outpost, HALO. And those were to have been launched separately as autonomously operating vehicles, launched separately, one after the other, into a highly elliptical orbit with a period of 14 days and a periapsis of 1,600 kilometers, and then rendezvoused together and docked together, much like we were used to seeing with the Russian space stations up to and including Mir, where the Russians maximized and majored on autonomous rendezvous and docking operations and they were to have been launched separately and docked automatically together and then all the plumbing and the leads and the conduits would have had to have been brought together automatically or put in place by a human visit by an Orion spacecraft or whatever but the inability to launch the two together was that it would have required an SLS for which there is no availability because SLS is one two and three will be supporting the Artemis landing but to parallel in sequence and, and you know these two elements to get the gateway up and running before the first initial landing, there was this concern about having 
two elements of the gateway, two launch vehicles, a highly complex operation around lunar orbit. So Lavero, who had come recently from the defense space sector in Washington at the Pentagon, knew that as part of the contract for some classified Defense Department payload that the Falcon Heavy was contracted to lift, there was a supersize, oversized payload shroud already in development. Lavero contacted his former buddies in the Pentagon and said, can we have one of those, please? Because we could stack both elements of the gateway on a Falcon Super Heavy and put it within a shroud which you're funding for this classified payload that Super Heavy will be launching before any of these gateway elements will get off the pad. And payload fairings are very, very expensive, which is why Elon Musk always puts great mileage in the next level of recovering these payload shrouds. They look like bits of, of carbon fiber, which, which is a shape into a bulbous aero protection structure. But there's incredibly complex engineering and design and manufacturing in those payload shrouds. So now the plan, whether it survives the post-Lavero control structure on Artemis and the gateway remains to be seen. But it seems an incredibly fast-track solution by using this defense payload shroud, which was not known within NASA, because NASA doesn't talk to a lot of the classified defense programs underway. So here was this shroud available, and lo and behold, it's big enough, um, goodness knows what size this defense payload is, to contain both the docked components. So essentially... A little bit like the old Skylab wet launch or dry launch. Can remember back in the, mm. the day when, when Skylab was to be launched to put itself up into orbit and then have to have a crew to fit it all out? Then they said, no, 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 no. We'll use a single big Saturn V to launch an already completely fitted out go-to station ready up and running when it arrives in orbit. And such is the case now with, with the gateway that they can, they can connect these two things for a single launch and get it to lunar orbit on one launch, one flight, with the two components in that. And and the Falcon Heavy is is building up quite a reliable record of its own. Um, and, and, and so that's a very, very interesting prospect that has occurred right at the time that NASA has gone to the next level of its lander source selection with Blue Origin, Dynetics, and SpaceX heading up competitive teams for the next 10 months to put their final definitive proposals for the human lander. But the landing on the demonstration mission, Artemis three, the first landing, as they like to say, the first woman and the next man on the surface by 2024, um, that human lander concept will be definitized in 10 months' time um, with final selection from these contenders, which are now ramping up the study preparations, and they're very, very different concepts, each of them, and completely, completely at clearance with each other. So this is not like bids for the lunar module back in the Apollo days. NASA literally is giving them a complete free hand to come up. And, of course, SpaceX is uh, putting up its Starship concept, which looks by far and away the least likely because of the enormous development curve and the tremendous sophistication which it has. And although it can put 80 tons on the surface of the moon, as 
specified in the mm. design of, of Starship. When you look at the concept, it's got a very high center of mass, and I don't think any of us would like to see that backing down onto the surface, <laughs> onto onto uh, onto a a lunar surface. Which, even, when when you look at the tilt angles of the lunar module, I'm afraid uh, SpaceX and its Starship would get within a few meters of the surface and then go quickly back up into orbit because it's never going to find the the level surface to within two to four degrees, which it needs to literally prevent it falling over. So um, <clears throat> that's one of the competing sides. Dynetics have got a very low profile where they put it all down. All the propellant tanks and the engines are down laterally across on the surface, which allows you just to go out the front door and step onto the surface. Blue Origin has this three-stage lander uh, with the crew compartment right at the top and a very long access ladder right down to the surface. So they're all very different. But everything's in the mix, and the clock is ticking with regard to 2024. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of technology isn't there to develop in- including like massive rockets that uh, haven't flown yeah. yet that uh, uh, and it all seems rather close now doesn't it 24 I, d- yeah, I think that's does. looking unlikely can, can we come further uh, closer to home now uh, you, yeah. you were talking before we, we came on air about a small startup in, in Britain a little satellite startup that sounded very interesting yes um, I can't quite work out whether they're a research and development organization or whether they're a manufacturing organization for space manufacturing. Um, and I was speaking with Joss Weston, who is one of the two founders of Space Forge. Play on words with regard to space, but the forge of the steelworks and the Iron Age of the first industrial revolution but in a more environmentally reusable, um, eco-sympathetic development path to try to find in microgravity new alloys, new pharmaceutical products, new materials which can massively transform the way we build the next series of um, equipment and infrastructure for our societies over the next several decades. What they're doing, and they're set up in Wales, they've been funded to the point of £600,000 from the Development Bank of Wales, the Bristol Private Equity Club, and Innovate UK. Go to their website, just Google Space Forge, and it's a little bit speculative as to exactly what they're trying to do. But in talking with Josh, I understand that it's based on CubeSats. But it's using a technology that will allow the CubeSats that will to be returned to Earth after remaining in space as satellites for weeks and months, carrying out automated or robotically controlled experiments with materials and processes that they believe will underpin a new generation of materials founded, forged, if you will, on principles of the advantages for physics, chemistry and biology in a microgravity environment. Now, I pose to Josh whether he was not 45 years too late, because that's exactly the kind of things that were being uh, publicized by a whole tranche of companies in the first space commercial revolution of the 1970s, when companies like Microgravity Research Associates, MRA, the EOS team, which was working on new pharmaceutical products from space, 
EOS being the acronym for Electrophoresis Operations in Space. McDonnell Douglas, as it was then, with Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company in Switzerland. And it was discovered during that activity, some of which spilled out into onboard experiments on the shuttle, that the real big gap was you can get all the technology in the world to demonstrate the capacity for new vaccines, for um, and they were working on a one-stop vaccine for diabetes, a solution for diabetes at the time. But the problem is you need such vast quantities that we need factories in space to be able to produce these products that come from very well-founded principles. So we can only wish Space Forge the best of luck. And Josh did laugh when, when he, he heard me say that, are you 45 years too late? Because I think he was aware that this is something whose time has not yet come, that there are tremendous opportunities for operating scientific principles that are well proven all the way from Skylab to Space Lab to the modules on the ISS, which is driving a requirement for privatized space stations onto which these kind of products could be developed. But that still leaves you dramatically short of the manufacturing in such quantities that you need an Earth-to-orbit, up-and-down, low-cost delivery system, which is what the shuttle was supposed to be. So the shuttle really, in that regard, was itself ahead of its time because it never could provide the launch frequency to move materials up and down and apply them into Earth-based industries. But this is what they're going for. And this is what has got the investment companies in the West Country around Bristol really seriously interested. And it's got the backing of the UK Space Agency. Um, Josh used to work with the UK Space Agency. So so obviously they were very aware of, of what he had been proselytizing and trying to encourage the space agency to push much further, which is the use of exotic materials fabricated in a microgravity environment for doing many of the processes which are very toxic heavy as we're using them on the surface of the Earth. But they're driven by by the whole need to reduce carbon footprints, to reduce toxicity levels in manufacturing processes, and to find a range of products that can work. And he's doing it through coupled CubeSat technologies. But the breakthrough in this is that they're using the kind of capsule recovery that early spy satellites used in the Discoverer series and the Keyhole series, the later Keyhole series, the Cage 9, where, where what were called buckets were returned to Earth. And that because it has low mass, um, the heat protection, uh, because the inertia is going to, place, obviously you're going to come back at the same velocity, but you're going to, to um, place the thermal protection chemistry within the purview of existing off-the-shelf materials to bring these things back. So a simple retro, very small retro thruster on a cluster of existing off-the-shelf CubeSats. So he's marrying up the kind of things that we do very good in this country, entrepreneurial, um, out-of-the-box thinking. So he's taking CubeSats, which exist, recovery processes for very, very small devices, they exist, and he wants to launch it on British rockets. And we've got a whole tranche of those coming up from companies like Skyrora that have just done a strapped-down proof test on the propulsion system of their XL, of their Skylark XL. And, and so this is, this is bringing together 
it, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's taking bits of what exists already, the investment's already been done, and harnessing it to push forward with developing technologies that may very well get aboard eventually the commercial space stations that for sure will be coming along in the next few years. Well, that's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? It's good. We've got kind of come full circle, I suppose, with environmental, envir- slightly more environmentally friendly and futuristic uh, <laughs> space missions that that seem a lot more sustainable than than uh, quite a lot of other space yeah. missions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, we, we, it's it's incredible, isn't it? Even in this, even in the times where we're all strapped down, there's a lot of space stories going on, and we've we've managed not even to talk about this week's. Huge, huge, huge return to U.S. human space flight. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we've we'll we'll have done that one to death. So that's that's fine. Thank, uh, I, I'm going to have to wrap this up, David. It's going to be a short one right. for us, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> but it's still quite a long one. But thank thank you very much for uh, for coming on. There, there's some uh, there's some really great things to think about there. I'll I'll definitely look up the Space Forge. That looks really interesting. Thank you, and good talking to you. Uh, there you go, Jamie. Well, incredible David stuff, Baker. as usual, from Mr. Baker. Uh, Thank you very much. What are you up to this weekend, Matt? I'm not, I don't know, Jamie. I might just relax. I'm very tired at the moment. Work's been very, very difficult. Yes, it's a stressful time for everyone. Make sure you relax. And, uh, you know, maybe, why don't, you, why don't you have a nice soak in the bathtub, put some candles on, stick on some Luther Vandross, maybe. Oh, what do you think about that? Luther Vandross. Or maybe oh, some yeah. Pat Metheny. Oh, come Jacko, on. With Jack with Jacob Pistorius on bass. Oh, what a bass player. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of an understatement. Jamie, shall we let the poor Spodcats go before we before let's, we start talking jazz? Let's, let's let it. them go. <laughs> One thing we don't go. ever want to do is, is have a jazz podcast. Oh, my that God. Let's definitely awful. not do that. That would be really bad. <laughs> All right, Spodcats, right. you have a good weekend, please. But and hopefully this time next week we'll be able to talk about the new era of spaceflight. Interplanetary podcast putting the worm back in the burn. burn. The worm with the return burn. We need to call up Brian nice. Blessing, get him to do a new jingle, don't we? The interplanetary podcast. The worm with the return burn. There you go. How about that? <laughs> That's it. We don't need him now. Perfect. Just pretend that was him. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so we let them I go. I guess that's it. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. Let's do it. Bye, mates. Bye, mates.